The great Puritan preacher, John Owen, had a, a wonderful line that's come down through the ages that I use regularly, and it's going to be the backbone of our sermon today. And the line is this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In that same passage, John Owen, he goes on to describe the Christian life as clearing away woods. Now, oftentimes when we think of woods, we think of something very beautiful, and there is something beautiful to woods. But in the picture John Owen was going for, he said, you know, your, your soul is crowded by, by brush and weeds and overgrown bushes and trees. And, and when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, God kind of takes up residence in this woods and he clears out this path so you can see clearly. And he clears away a whole bunch of sin immediately in your life and he makes something new in you. But there's still this, this brush that needs to be continually cleared away. There's still new trees to be chopped down so that more light can come in and you can continue to see God more clearly. The Christian life that we call sanctification from the moment of belief to the moment you die is this continual process of clearing away the brush. And John Owen says it so well. He says, if you stop that process at any point in your life, if you stop actively looking to clear away the brush, eventually what happens is a forest fire comes and it does significant damage into your life. We need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. What woods and what brush of sin are you actively clearing out of your life right now? When we think about sin in the church, very often the first thing that happens to us is we, we think about someone else we know in the church. Maybe we think about our spouse. Maybe we think about our friend or we think about someone in our small group. The stuff they got to work on. And uh, that's the wrong way to approach sin. Uh, the great joy of the Christian life is as Philippians 2 says, to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. That means to be getting after this work of continually understanding more and more of the gospel as the Holy Spirit reveals more and more of our own brokenness and more and more victory comes in that way. What, what sin are you actively rooting out right now? And if the answer is there isn't any, that's actually a little bit of the problem I'm going to be addressing today. Okay. Today we approach a turning point in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been going verse by verse. It's been a great journey so far. We've got a lot ahead of us still. And we hit a bit of a turning point in 1 Corinthians. Paul is going to start hitting some very specific challenges the Corinthian church has been having. And he's going to hit them head on. And today we deal with the area of sexual sin. Verses 1 and 2. Let me read them to us. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. There's two problems happening in the Corinthians church. Number one, there's a member of the church who's sleeping with his stepmom. That's a problem. Biblically, that's not okay. Okay? This is, uh, this is a kind of sin that in a hyper-sexualized culture like Corinth in the first century, even the non-believers who were, they had all types of debauchery and sinful ways among them. They were a hyper-sexualized culture, much like our own culture. Even they, the pagans, knew, you just don't go there. That's, that's, that's not permitted. And yet here it is, it's in the church. And so the first question is, well, what do we do with this man who's in the church? But then there's a second problem. The second problem is that the Corinthian church had grown, quote, arrogant about it. What we think that means is that the Corinthian church was essentially 
using the fact that this man was in an incestuous affair with his stepmother to make bold claims about the grace of Jesus Christ. They were basically saying to the the unbelievers in Corinth, they were saying, look, look at what Jesus can do in your life. Under the grace of the gospel, you can do anything you want. Come be a part of our community. It was an evangelism strategy. Now, if I'm just honest with you, that's actually the same exact evangelism strategy that many churches in our city follow. Not this church. We don't follow that. But that is the evangelism strategy. There's very little talk about sin. There's very little talk about overcoming sin. There's very little definition of what is sin and what isn't sin. Why? Come into the church and be part of a social club, and we'll just generally talk about God together. It's the Corinthian problem over again. And so Paul has this chapter with us where he is going to be giving three main pieces of advice to deal with both of those issues, both the man who's in sin, what do we do with that man, and with the, the community as a whole. How do we begin to think rightly about sin when it's inside the community? And the big idea is from John Owen. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Three pieces of advice. First one is gonna take us from verse three to verse five. Paul's first advice is this. Do not tolerate unrepentant sin. Okay? You wanna be a member in the church? Do not tolerate unrepentant sin. Paul says this. Three to five. For though absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. And, if, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Now, before, before I go any further, I want to uh, make a little bit of an acknowledgement up front. We're going to be talking about sexual sin for the next few weeks. And, uh, and like I just said, we're living in a hypersexualized culture. And as a pastor, I just know there's, there's a lot of confusion on this because there's a lot of churches that teach very different things than what I'm gonna be teaching today. And before I even dig in, I wanna, you know, I have two aims. Number one, as a pastor, I, I wanna know what does the Bible say? I, I don't wanna sugarcoat the Bible. I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna preach the word of God with utter clarity no matter the cost. That's my job. But number two, I want to make sure that the message that's proclaimed from this pulpit is never shame upon shame. It's always grace upon grace for sinners like us. And so as we navigate hard things, if you're feeling in your heart some kind of tension of what the the Bible is saying is different than what I've been living or what I've been believing, what I want you to know is that the, the The grace of the gospel is that there is an opportunity for you to see the truth of scripture and to realign yourself by the work of God, to come back into the fold of what God is saying, what is true by the word of God, and not to stay believing things that are false. It's always grace upon grace. All of us have things we're constantly learning. Now, let's look at this. Verse three, Paul says, I've already pronounced judgment. Now, Paul is an apostle. That means that he has a certain level of authority that was unique among the 12 apostles to speak into the life of all the churches at his day. Pretty much no one else would be able to do that today. Let's take someone like Billy Graham, who passed away recently. An apostle-like figure, a man who had much influence over the global church. If Billy Graham came to an elders meeting with me and Darren, uh, and he came to an elders meeting, he would have no authority to pronounce judgment over cases that we are handling in the church, even though he, he was a wonderful global figure that many churches knew, okay? Paul was an apostle. 
So he has a particular authority in that role to speak into all the churches that he had helped plant. And as an apostle, he says, I've already cast judgment. Now, what does he mean by that? One of the work elders do when it comes to governance. Now, now we oftentimes have the wrong view of a church and what it is. A church is a government unto itself. I know that sounds strange, but it is. There's the federal government. There's the state government. There's civic government. There's the government of the family, whereby a father and a husband rules his home. And then there's also the government of the church. And the governors of the church are the elders of the church, qualified biblical men who step into the role of governing. And they do many things, but one of the things they do is that they handle cases that are brought before them, disputes, arguments, challenges that are bubbling up within the church. And one of the things that the elders are doing is that when some level of sin or some problem is rising up in the, in the church, the elders judge accordingly and pronounce judgments and movements of what needs to take place to rectify the situation. Paul says, I've already given the judgment. Here's what needs to happen. What is his judgment? Verse four, the judgment for the man who's caught in this incestuous affair with his stepmom is excommunication. He is to be cast down. Now, listen to the language very clearly here. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does he mean by that? Well, excommunication is an interesting punishment here because it, it has with it the connotation of, of, of a herd of animals. If ever you've seen like on National Geographic or something like that, a herd of animals, if you see a lion off to the side and he sees a herd of animals and you see this lion hunting, most of the time, the pack is not that afraid. The pack of animals, they know the lion's over there, but they're all together. Who's in trouble? The, the, one, the animal that's in trouble is the animal that's strayed from the pack, that's all by himself. He's defenseless. And it's the animals that are wandering off by themselves, away from the pack. They don't have the, the bulls of the community, community to protect against the, the prowling lions. They're the ones that get eaten and chased down by the lions. The lions very rarely ever go for a pack. So Paul is saying here, he says, look, excommunicate this man. Put him out in a place where he doesn't have the protection of the community, where he's solo. Let him feel the weight of being attacked by the lion himself. So that, read this, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's excommunication with a heart of salvation. Here's Paul looking at a man who is in deathly sin. And we're gonna get more, more detail on this in a minute. But he's looking at a man who is, who is on the edge of hell, literally. And he's saying, my heart is that that man would be saved on the day of his judgment. And if we do nothing, it's not gonna happen. If we let it go and we just celebrate it and we say, hey, keep going, no judgment here. The end of that road is an eternity in hell. He goes, so cast him out because my desire is that that man would experience salvation, that he would experience the grace of Jesus Christ that forgives him for all of his sin. So cast him out of here. The so that is salvific, so that he might be saved. Now to our modern ears, when you hear about excommunication in the church, um, most people are thinking this, right? If, if this case were to bubble up in our church today, what you would say is, this man needs counseling. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't need excommunication. That's just the modern way we think of these things. He needs counseling. Now, I don't doubt this man would need counseling. I think he needs counseling for a number of reasons after, after this situation. However, he also needs excommunication. The problem is much deeper. Paul's looking at this man, 
And, and he's recognizing that the Spirit of God is not in this man. He's claiming the name of Jesus. He's saying, I'm a Christian. I'm a member of the church. But his actions are revealing no repentance, no, no agony over sin in his life. His actions are revealing that there's been no change in his life from before he ever proclaimed the name of Jesus and that really he's just using the community of the church for his own social benefit. He's claiming to be a Christian, but his behavior is revealing he's actually not a Christian. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4-6 to six, read this way. Whoever says, I know him, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps the word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, some of you might be hearing a passage like that. And you might hear a preacher like me saying these verses. And what you might be saying in your life is, well, I got sin in my life. Am I not legitimately a Christian? Here's how I want to respond to that. If that's a concern you're having, then I don't think that applies to you. Because to be concerned that you might have sin in your life that is revealing that you are not truly a follower of Christ is to show that the Holy Spirit's doing something in you that is able to reveal that there's some work to do here because your ultimate goal is to please the Lord. If you're at all concerned about it, it's not that you shouldn't be pressing in from this sermon and saying, let's get rid of that sin. Let's take new steps today when I leave. But if there's a concern in you, that shows me the Holy Spirit's doing something in you. My fear is that there's no concern in you. And that's what's happening in Corinth. They're arrogant about it. He's arrogant about it. They're just going on with sin. No concern whatsoever. And he's saying, that's showing me he's not actually a Christian. He never truly accepted Jesus. Now, let's talk about this excommunication thing for a bit. I was listening to NPR a couple years ago, and I, I heard this fascinating story I'd never heard before. I've actually never seen a biblical commentary make mention of this. And so I don't know... I don't know how deep this is, but here, it was talking to a Jewish man about synagogue life. Modern Jewish man, talking about modern synagogue life. And this Jewish man had been cast out of his community. He had been caught in some kind of sin. It was a deep sin. And I ended up looking this up, and I found online that within the Jewish modern synagogue culture, there's, I think there's 14 different sins that you can commit. There's a very specific set of sins that you can commit that will cause you to be excommunicated from the community. And he said when he got excommunicated from the community, it wasn't just not being able to attend the worship gatherings on their holy day. It was much more than that. No one would talk to him. But the thing is, in the Jewish community, especially in cities or anywhere, in small towns, they're so tight-knit into each other's lives. They depend on each other for so many reasons. Why? Well, there's meats that Jewish people can't eat. So you want to get meat at the butcher? You got to go to the guy who you're sitting next to in church. But if that guy won't talk to you and won't sell food to you, what do you eat? You see the weight of this? And so he got excommunicated from his community. No one would talk to him. All of his social fabric, no one would, would speak to him. If they passed him on the street, they'd walk on the other side. That's how serious they took it. It was so serious that after three weeks of this, this man came crawling back to the synagogue saying, I, I, I never want to experience that again. 
I, I want back. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. Now, I think Paul maybe is getting after something like that here. But if he is, if he is, then I, I, th- I think maybe we don't have the infrastructure to support that. Because there's some big differences between that type of community and what, if I were to enact excommunication on somebody today in this church, how that would play out, and it wouldn't have the same effect. And I wonder maybe if this sermon, really what we need to talk about today is the heart of biblical community and how to get to a place where we're so tight-knit that 1 Corinthians 5 could actually have the effect it's supposed to have on us as a community. Why wouldn't this work on us as a community? Well, I think for a lot of folks, we see the church as, most importantly, a social club. What is this place? This is a place to meet friends. It's a place to connect, especially in a big city like Chicago. It's a place to be involved in people's lives, get known, you know, get to, you know, have some pizza parties from here and there. And while we may not use that language, because you've heard Pastor Rafe rail against that language before, while you might not boast about that language, it kind of is the reason for being in the church. You know, think about it this way. If excommunication for three weeks is church discipline, Many in this room actively option into church discipline as a regular way of life by only attending one in every two or three weeks. If that feels convicting, just let that sit in for a moment. If you only come and join the community once every two and three weeks, you're basically living in what's supposed to be church discipline, but you don't feel the pain of it. Why why is that? There's something about the heart of biblical community that should be such that if you If something so tragic or major happens in your life that you can't gather with the saints on a Sunday, that should sting so deeply that it feels as if you're you're underneath judgment. But we're kind of far from that, aren't we? I mean, that that almost feels like it's too too lofty a goal to chase after. And I think part of it is that we don't treat the the, the church right. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 3, What did Paul say we were in 1 Corinthians 3? He said, we are, the church is, the temple of the living God. You remember the language there? You are the temple. Not the building. We're not a physical temple. In the Old Testament, the temple was the place where the glory of God dwelt, where the nations would come in and see the glory of God on display. They'd see a sacrificial system where blood was being shed for the forgiveness of sin. It would all point to the coming Messiah one day, and the nations would come in and say, whoever those people are, whatever God is in that temple, I want to... That's true, it's real. And he says, look, the community, that's you now. There's no more building, it's a community. And so when the nations, those who are far from God, looking on this community, living their life in community, sacrificing for one another, chasing after holiness together, rooting out sin together, sacrificing their weekends for one another, the nations ought to look in and say, that's the real God is in the midst of that. I, 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 whatever I thought was God, it's not that God. That's a more powerful God. But because we don't have this temple mindset, this we are a people of God chasing after the purposes of God and the holiness of God, we read 1 Corinthians 5 and we, we say, that's crazy. What a wild idea to excommunicate someone and cast them into Satan's hands. It's a biblical community issue. We've got a long ways to go. And, and what I want to do today is I want to I sow a seed that says if we have a picture from 1 Corinthians 5 of what biblical community could be, that level of dependence on one another, that if you were to suddenly be taken out of it, your life would crumble, 
I think there's a lot of hope for this church. I think God could lay some groundwork for us to be incredibly fruitful in the future. Here's the point I'm making in this first point that Paul is making. Don't tolerate unrepentant sin. Don't tolerate unrepentant sin. Before we get to excommunication, that's the, that's the final step in unrepentant sin. That's the last thing we do. There's a whole lot of steps before that, which we, we, we can cover, and I'll get to the practicals in just a little bit. But the big idea is this, not just as the governors of the church, but as individuals and members in the church, don't tolerate unrepentant sin, not in a way of shaming anybody. Don't tolerate it in yourself. See sin in yourself and say, I'm, I'm after Jesus. And where I see it, I want to put accountability in my life to get rid of that. And hold each other accountable. Now let's talk about sexual immorality a little bit. We're going to be dealing with this for the next few weeks. We're living in a culture that, that, that uh, celebrates what the Bible declares as sexual immorality, that declares what the Bible declares as sexual immorality to be normal and good. In fact, there are a lot of churches in this city who will actually change the Bible in order to say that you can do anything you want sexually, the, the God of the New Testament is not concerned about what we do in bed with who we do it with. That, that, that's just not the God of the New Testament. That's their language. And, and I actually want to lay some clarity for us here. The, the word that's used in the beginning when it talks about sexual immorality, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. It's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our modern word pornography from. And it refers to all sorts of deviations and perversions from God's true standard of sexuality. God's true standard, what brings flourishing into a home, what brings flourishing into a society, is when marriage and when sexual, sexual activity is brought between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage for life. And all deviations from that standard are considered porneia in the Bible. Everything. So if a man and a woman have sex while they're dating or while they're engaged or engage in any kind of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage, that's considered porneia. It's a breaking of God's good and beautiful design for marriage and for what sexual activity is. If two people of the same gender have sex at any point, whether they've gone through what our city calls a marriage or not, it breaks God's good and perfect design for one man and one woman for life. If someone, a man or a woman, utilizes pornography, which is a literal use of the word porneia, that breaks God's design by fantasizing outside of God's design for what marriage is between one man and one woman for life. You become a many-woman man or a many-man woman. It's the same thing as going to a brothel. All of these are being celebrated in the culture just as they were being celebrated in the Corinthian culture. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying there ought to be a, a counter-formational strategy in the church that whatever's happening in the world around you, you should expect it's gonna be different. Expect the world to celebrate all kinds of deviations from God's design on every kind of topic. But in the church, we're a new people who are chasing after holiness together. So get the standard right. Don't drag in perversions into the church with you. God's got a design for sexual morality. Why would that be important? Why would God be interested in that? Well, you know what, in the, in the scriptures, there's two huge illustrations God uses to paint a picture of what the gospel is. Adoption's one of them. We're gonna have a few weeks where we celebrate that in a few weeks. The other one is marriage. All through the Bible, God uses marriage to paint a picture of the gospel. And, 
And he says that Jesus is like the great groom and the church is like his bride. And, and, and marriage points us to the relationship of Jesus to his church where the husband sacrifices his life for the bride to serve her. He gave up his rights. Philippians chapter two, he humbled himself taking on the form of a servant to care for his bride, to lift her up, to serve her, to enter into this covenant relationship with one another that cannot be broken. There's no way to break it. And so marriage, under God's design, points to God's vision of the church and his relationship to the church. So when you distort marriage, when you distort sexual activity in the church, you're distorting the image of the gospel. That's why it's so important. That's why the church can't play games with this. That, that's why I, I, I'm trying to be as clear as I possibly can as a preacher so we're not confused in any way. No confusion. God's word wins every time. Now let me give us some practicals when it comes to church discipline. I'm still on the first point here, okay? Root out unrepentant sin from among us. Practicals on church discipline. How does this work in the church practically? Very rarely, if ever, do we ever get to the point of excommunication. I'm just letting you know, me and Darren are not like, you're out, you're out, you know, throwing excommunication cards out here, right, left, and center. But that's actually a problem, okay? And let me explain to you why. Here's how it works. Uh, normally, there's some steps that happen first. And you all are very familiar with this. Lord willing, you've done these steps just as much as me and Darren have done these steps as elders. What happens is if we find sin in someone's life or it's reported to us that there's some kind of sin in someone's life, we lovingly and graciously step into someone's life with the Bible open. And we say, hey, look, we heard this. Like, talk to us. What's going on? Like, where are you? What's going on? Oftentimes, there's so much more to the story than what you've heard at first. And it's just a listening game. It's just, we had no idea that was going on in your life. Let us pray for you, right? And there's this healing that takes place as we recognize, yes, there was sin, but there's way more to the story. We're in it with you. Let's put some deacons around you. Let's get, let's get our biblical counseling team around you. All that happens all the time, and it's beautiful and wonderful. And so you never get to the point where there's unrepentant sin that's not being turned from. Sometimes, though, it goes a different direction. Actually, more often than I'd like to, like to admit. Sometimes you come to somebody and you say, hey, look, we heard this, we've seen this, like, what's going on? Here's the Bible, we're, we're coming with love. And they flip tables. And they point fingers. And there's no humility. We become the bad guys. It's the church against them. And they're going down in a flaming inferno, bringing as many people with them. And before they leave the church, before we can ever get to excommunication, and you know what the real problem with this is? Of all the people that's happened to over the last, let's just say, five years, there's a number of them. I'm watching their life from a distance right now, and it brings me to tears, seeing that they're very far from the Lord. There's a lot of brokenness that I wanted to be in their life and care for them and see them get healing. And they ran before we had a chance to do it. So we very rarely get to excommunication. But I actually think that's a problem. And the root problem here is we, we've lowered the design and desire of biblical community. Because there, it's not Corinth anymore, right? It's not just one church. You don't like this church? Go down the street. There's another one over there. And you, you can be unknown and not let them know about anything. It'll take that pastor three, four more years to figure out what's going on in your life. They don't know you as well as I do. Right? You can hide we got to raise the bar of community. That's the main issue here. Number one, 
Root out sin wherever you see it. I'm gonna go quickly through these last two. Number two, advice number two. Complacency with sin will slowly kill a church. Paul ends up using this language of leaven in the church. He says a little leaven leavens the whole bunch. And then he says, look, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Verse eight, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul utilizes this image of leaven or yeast inside dough. Now, this was important language to the community, which came out of Jewish culture. In first century, all the, most of the Christians at this point were, were Jews who were coming out of Jewish culture. It was very Jewish. But what was happening was they were going backwards to the feast of the Passover. This was an Old Testament celebration. And the idea of unleavened bread came from the Old Testament book of Exodus where the Jews fled Egypt. They had been slaves. They fled Egypt. But it happened so quickly that they didn't have time to put leaven in their, in their dough. And so they ran out of Egypt as slaves, fleeing Egypt as slaves with unleavened bread. And so every year when they celebrated that, that, that remembrance of God delivering them from slavery in Egypt, they, they celebrated it by eating unleavened bread. It was a reminder of what had happened to them. And it was this picture of holiness. We're set apart. We're a people who God loves and cherishes and has redeemed. And so every year we're going to celebrate this celebration with unleavened bread. Well, the thing with leaven is once you put a little leaven into a batch of dough, it spreads through the whole thing. You, you can't get it out. There's, no, you, you, you can't, there's nothing to do. The only way to get it out is to start an entire new batch of dough without leaven in it. And he says, look, you're already unleavened, meaning you're already holy. The final Passover lamb has come. You've already been declared saints in the Lord. Remember that, chapter one? You've already been declared holy in the Lord. So you're unleavened bread. You are the fullness of what that was always pointing towards. So don't drag in. Now, now sin with you into this. Don't bring in all this stuff. Once you get it in, you can't get it out. It just starts spreading through the church. It's impossible to remove. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16, he actually uh, gets on the Pharisees using the same language. Now, now, what am I not saying here? Remember, the second point is this. Don't be complacent with sin. Because if you're complacent, it will manifest and multiply in the church. What I'm not saying is that we need to be a church that becomes like the Pharisees. And where our primary identity is, root sin out everywhere. Sin, we're just getting rid of sin everywhere you go. Right, that's what we're mainly about. What we cannot do. That's not the message. That was That's what Jesus was constantly railing on the Pharisees for. Listen to the language Jesus used, Matthew 16. Jesus says to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What was their leaven? The the leaven was, look, they've, they've ruined what was supposed to be true religion by making it all about the do's and the don'ts and making a man-made set of rules, and they've missed the heart of it. They've missed the heart of following Jesus all along. And so here's, here's what you gotta do. If you wanna help somebody who's stuck in sin because you're concerned about leaven coming into the community or coming into your family, how, how do you help them? There is a place to come alongside with a Bible open and, and disciple and say, let's look at this together and and challenge them, there's a strong place for that. The best communities I've ever been a part of are doing that regularly. But there's something actually more important. There's a better way to do it than just that. David Brainerd was a missionary in the 1700s who evangelized to Native Americans living in, on American soil. And that sounded terrible. Native Americans who were in America at the time. And there were all sorts of false morality among the Native American tribes. If you study Native American history, there was a lot of beauty in, in in the tribes, but there was also a lot of sin. 
there were all sorts of debauchery, all sorts of vices that were going through. And so when missionaries would go to the Native American tribes, they were trying to help them understand what does a virtuous life look like? How do you follow Jesus and root out sin in your life? And there were any number of types of things that were taking place. But David Brainerd, as a missionary, writes this about helping Native Americans live a virtuous life. He says, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. And I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other. I find my Indians begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. So what's David Brainerd saying as a missionary? He's saying, the more I focus on Jesus and form their heart to know and abide in Christ, the more the sin just begins to fade off like dross. It just begins to crumble like ash in the wind because what's happening is their heart is being renewed. The more they love Jesus, I don't even have to focus on the don't do this as much anymore. It just starts to fade off. You see that? So if you want to come alongside a brother or sister, focus on Christ over and over. It's abiding in Jesus, living by the fruit of the Spirit and slowly what will happen is sin will begin to fade in their life. And you can come alongside them and disciple them in that way. We can't be complacent with sin. Uh, I, I wrote a piece recently. I was, I was commenting on an article that Thomas Watson, the Puritan Thomas Watson, had written. And he was writing about the Christian life of, of lamenting over sin in our community. My point I'm trying to make is don't be complacent with sin. And what I mean by that is where you see sin in the community, don't just think that's normal. Have a plan to be a part of rooting it out. Thomas Watson writes about this, and he says this. He says, the godly are weeping doves. They grieve for the oaths and the blasphemies of the age. The sins of others, like spears, pierce their souls. This grieving for the sins of others is good. It shows a childlike heart to resent with sorrow the injuries done to our Heavenly Father. Well, let me lay this at you. Do you grieve over the sins of others? When you look at Chicago, is there a grieving that, that is a good response to a perversion of God's standard? Or are you complacent with it? Complacency multiplies over time. It spreads like leaven throughout the church. And we're a holy people. We're a set-apart people. We're a people who are, who are delivered in the name of Jesus Christ, who are chasing after the holiness of God. Don't ever get complacent with sin. Always be pushing back the, the brush and the weeds. Third piece of advice, I'll close on this. Don't settle in any area of your life. So far, Paul has been highlighting sexual sin. Sometimes that's the easiest low-hanging fruit to, to pick on in a culture. But listen to what he does next, verses 9 to 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, that means non-believers, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, uh-oh, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Ready? Ready? not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay. 
On any given Sunday, I have any number of people in this room who are not followers of Christ. And if you're not a follower of Christ and you're sitting in this room today and you are scratching your head and you're saying, what have I gotten myself into? Am I about to be excommunicated from, the, from this community? Let me speak to you for a second if you're a non-believer. And secondarily, I'm gonna speak to the believers in the room to know what I think and what I'm trying to communicate to the believers, the non-believers. To the non-believers in this room, if you came on the arm of a friend, no, you're not gonna get excommunicated, okay? But here's what I want you to see. I'm hoping that when you look in on this church and we're about what, about what we're about, and you see the seriousness with which we get after loving the real God, the true God, who's over the God, the God of this city, when you see the level of tenacity we have for lifting each other up in holiness, chasing after godliness together, rooting out sin and chasing after the life that is truly life and seeing the blessings of God flow through a community, through us into the city so that we can seek the shalom, that's the peace of the city, and we can see Jesus proclaimed everywhere. Why? Because that's the name that is above every name. When you, non-believer, in the room, you see how serious we are about this, I hope it's like you visited the temple in Jerusalem in the old days and you look in on the temple and you go, Man, they really believe this thing. And I want a piece of that. I want to be held accountable like that. Because you know what? If you're a non-believer, my guess is you got a lot of brokenness in your life and your complacency with the perversions of whatever way we're living in society today is not producing fruit in your life. You want real fruit? Come to the church. You're welcome in. But know this, when you come in, there's a standard we're going to hold you to. We're gonna lift you up and we're not gonna let you slip through. We're not gonna let you fall. That's what every member in this church is accountable to. Now, believers, when you hear that, are you living by the standard we say we're living to to non-believers who are looking in on us? Is that the standard you hold every person in this room to? Is that the standard you hold your life to? Paul says don't even associate with somebody who's greedy or a drunkard or a reviler. It's not just the person who's sleeping with his stepmom. Now, these sins, to a degree, are in all of us. Greed works its way through everyone's heart. Idolatry, in many different ways, works its way through everyone's heart. Reviling, a reviling heart. It's not a sin. No, no, let me take that back. It's a sin. The problem is not that there are degrees of these sins in your life. The problem is when you become complacent with it and you think it's normal and you just keep bringing it into the church with you. If and when that happens, what you're showing is the spirit of God is not at work in you. Here's what that means. Go backwards for a second. Let's think about the big picture of the gospel. The big picture of the gospel, what the church is all about, is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that every one of us were cut off. We were excommunicated from God. Every one of us, because of our own sin, because of greed, because of idolatry, because of revilery, because of drunkenness, because of every type of sin that God's ever written about, we all committed them in varying degrees. And as a result, we were under the judgment of God, cut off from God for all eternity. That is the condition of every single person on this planet who's ever been born, cut off from God. But God sent Jesus, God in the flesh, into this life to live the perfect life, perfectly obeying the law. He's the only one who wasn't cut off. But then when he went under the cross, he became cut off for us. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from the Psalms, he's experiencing excommunication on our behalf so that those who were excommunicated by right, by what is truly just, by faith can receive a free gift. He experienced the penalty for our sin, excommunication, so that we can experience the reality of his sonship and we can be adopted back into the family of God. And so when you, Christian, if you keep living a way that shows you haven't actually been changed. There's still the same greed, you don't care. The same drunkenness, you don't care. What you're showing is you're still cut off. You never actually received Jesus in the first place and never actually got adopted into his life. And so Paul is saying, here's what you do with someone who's claiming to be a Christian, but actually their true spiritual condition is they're actually still cut off from God. Excommunicate them so they can experience the reality of their spiritual condition. Don't even eat with them because that's their relationship with God right now. Let them feel the fullness of it. Now, once again, let me come back to you and say this. If you're at all nervous that that's you, my guess is it's not you because it shows the spirit of God is doing a work in you, but don't be complacent with sin. How do we get through this together as a church? You abide in Christ. You can't, you, you, you can't as a Christian community say, okay, Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and we're just gonna be the moral police doing this. You've got to abide in Jesus, and as you abide in Jesus, the Spirit of God begins to do a work in you where he will help you. Literally, he's the one who overcomes this in your life. He begins to push back the brush that's beginning to crowd in on your life and take back new territory in Christ's name. The Spirit will make you aware of sin as you abide in Christ. He'll begin to reveal areas of your life. You know, there's sin here. I know you think it's okay, but it's not. It's there. The Spirit of God, as you abide in Christ, will bring sin to mind. He'll he'll teach you how to grieve over sin. That's what the Spirit of God does. As you abide in Christ, you begin to grieve over sin. As you abide in Christ, he'll begin to kill sin in your life. It'll just change your affections. You'll wake up one day after abiding in Christ for a season, knowing this sin is there, grieving over it, and then one day you wake up, you say, I don't even desire it anymore. I, I... That's your story, isn't it, Christian? Every one of you, you don't desire the sins you used to desire. They're just not attractive anymore. You hate them. You've experienced it, but you're not done. There's more. The Spirit of God, he'll lead you in helping others to do the same with gentleness, with humility, with love. Don't settle in any area of your life. Now, let me close. Let me invite the band up right now. Let me just tell you what happens next in Corinthians. If you were to skip forward into 2 Corinthians, this is another letter that Paul wrote probably a few I don't know, a few months later. I don't know the exact date, but it was a little later. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter two. Paul writes this. Now, if any of you, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You know what I think that means? I think he's commenting on this exact guy we read about today who was caught in sin. I think that's a commentary in 2 Corinthians, a book that comes a little later saying, you kicked him out? Look at him. He's begging to come back in. Show him your love. He's ready to receive your love. God's church built God's way. Following God's commands will bear God's fruit. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you.